Mitako Yasi, translated, it simply means we are all related. One heart and one mind and one body. And welcome, you're tuned in to another episode of The Wellness Cast, where science and ancient wisdom collaborate. 3ABR 87.6 FM, and we're your host, Katarina and Brett Morrison. Actually, I'm here alone tonight, but we've got um, a great uh, show on tonight. Our special guest is a very well-known peer within our industry, and let me introduce you to Carla Wren, no stranger to the public eye. Are you there, Carla? Yes, thank you oh, for having me. fantastic. How are you going? Great, thank you. Yeah, we're so lucky to have you on tonight um, at uh, your calibre, person of your calibre. Now, uh, just let me... My pleasure. (laughs) Let me quickly... um, You can see I'm in the studio alone tonight. Um, Let me introduce you, though, um, quickly to everyone. So... You're an integrative naturopath and nutritionist and you completed your Bachelor of Health Science in 2001. So around about 21 years you've been practising, haven't you? Yes, it seems like uh, such a short time, but when you say it like that, it sounds like a (laughs) while. It's amazing, isn't it? Now, um, you've completed postgraduate studies in integrative oncology, autoimmune diseases and functional medicine within the Australian realm and uh, the US. So um, a lot of people come and consult you in the area of complex and chronic diseases, especially like long COVID at the moment. And obviously yes. the oncology support. So, you know, you're wearing your cape today, are you? <laughs> you know, saving a lot of people. <laughs> um, I try my hardest. Yeah. Now, look, the beauty about you, you've been um, in practice for 21 years, but you actually the, are the owner of the Peninsula Herbal Dispensary, a well-known naturopathic clinic on um, the east side of town. Um, but you've got 12 naturopaths actually working underneath you. So it's quite a big clinic. Yes, it is growing clinic and it's lovely to have a real mix of practitioners who have been uh, practicing as long as me. One of my dear friends, Kimberly Taylor, our pediatric naturopath, I studied with her when we were 17. So it's lovely to work with her. Wow, that's amazing. Right through to some really um, new graduates who have just graduated in the last year or so and are full of all the latest information. So we love having them here with us too. Yeah. Now, you're a um, real passionate advocate for all we have to offer as a uh, naturopathic and complementary medicine practitioner. Tell us what's so different about functional medicine. Why, um, you know, why do we get a lot of people coming to us, basically? Yeah, so I guess naturopathy and functional medicine have a lot of the roots in the same place. And, uh, I, you know, I really love the idea of we treat the cause. And one of the most famous functional medicine practitioners, Dr. Mark Hyman, who I really um, <laughs> admire, yeah. talks about um, if you have, he says, a thumbtack, but we'll say like a drawing pin stuck in your foot, would you put a Band-Aid on over it or would you remove the drawing pin? And so really that says a lot about the kind of things we think about when we're working with patients, both from a functional medicine perspective or a natural medicine perspective we're trying to treat the cause um, and understand what happened and what changed in that body uh, to take them away from a homeostatic balance into a place where they are are diseased or have a disease diagnosis beautiful isn't it It, it, 
it's a really different way of looking at um, health and disease in a patient, isn't it? Instead of just naming the disease and giving the same treatment to everyone with that disease, it just looks at different systems in the body. And we really look for the, I think the main thing is that we actually look for the underlying root cause. Mm, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Use timelines and tools like that to really try and see what changed for that patient, whether they were born like that and it's a genetic component or whether it's something that's happened to them in their lifetime physically or mentally or, um, you know, a lifestyle choice that they're making and try and tie that together to really understand where we need to target our treatment. Yeah. Now, um, we've got a great uh, focus tonight. We've got oncology, obviously, mm-hmm. integrative oncology. Now, um, I guess what touched this is um, Olivia Newton-John passing as well. And you've got uh, a lot of people who used, uh, I guess, Olivia as a benchmark of um, how to thrive you know, or, or survive um, whilst you have breast cancer. Yes, for sure. I think she really held a special spot for a lot of Australians and probably people overseas as someone who had... Um, yes, yeah, thrived throughout her diagnosis. She contributed a lot to the industry, uh, not only with her hospital, but also with her research into plant medicine and um, her understanding about the importance of the modifiable lifestyle factors, even with her you know, retreats and those kind of things that she offered. And to see someone living so long and so well uh, with a disease really inspired a lot of the people suffering from the same disease to not think of cancer as the big C with a death sentence, but rather something that is a chronic disease that we can um, live a um, loving and happy and um, you know successful life, fulfilling life, uh, while still um, re- resolving as much as possible, or addressing and, and going through standard treatment, and maybe using some complementary medicines to to be around for as long as possible and be as healthy as possible. Yeah. Now, as well as you being um, a passionate advocate, you've actually done a lot of work for the industry, uh, a lot of industry collaboration. Um, you've spent the last six years training over a thousand practitioners in your course. You've got um, Vitae Mosaic. Mm. Um, which is a naturopathic functional medicine um, tool, isn't it? Yes, yes. So I spent a lot of time really working with complex cases and I did look to see, you know, what were other practitioners doing when patients came to them, not just with diabetes or menopause or depression, but with all of them. Because, it, you know, we treat the cause, but when there's so many uh, diagnoses and disease names given to, you know, things one patient's experiencing, we really have to be great detectives to understand what's going on in functional medicine, um, as it was at the Institute of Functional Medicine in the US. I really had a lot of practitioners who were talking about how to dre- address these multifaceted kind of mosaic diseases, yeah, which is how I got yeah, interested wow. in functional medicine and developed my course. Yeah, fantastic. So um, how did you get... To, or navigate the path to being a naturopath? Oh, it was an accident, really. I was, <laughs> uh, you know, I did my work experience um, with some gentlemen who were working in a rehabilitation facility uh, making prosthetic and orthotic limbs. Wow. And I thought yeah. that would be a good job for me until I discovered just how much uh, tools and machinery and um, you know, like woodworking skills are involved. And as much as I love that, uh, I've been through that was for me and my dad at the time went to see a naturopath and he suggested, why don't I go along to the open date? So I went along and signed up. There was a small use of natural medicine in my house growing up, but certainly it wasn't something that we were, I was regularly exposed wow. to. So I don't know if it's like a twist of fate or everything <laughs> happens for a reason, but 
you know, there I was at 17 uh, studying. 17, and, wow, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, it was it was a great, I'm very grateful. I think I've been very blessed in our industry and I'm very passionate about the work that we do. Yeah, fantastic. And, and we're so blessed to have you, obviously. I mean, you're our go-to to, to a lot of, lot of us, actually. Um, and, and what we're seeing at the moment, there's a lot of people that have been touched by breast cancer. Obviously, I, I know personally at least 10 and, and quite mm. a few patients. But why is breast cancer so common at the moment? And why are we seeing an increasing amount of young women getting breast cancer? Are there any ideas that we have out there? I, I guess there's a plethora of, of reasons why, but can we touch on some of them? Yeah, look, I definitely think, you know, it is one of the most common cancers for women to experience, um, you know, in a multitude of stages in their life and um, certainly issues around hormonal um, health and uh, metabolism of those hormones can play a part in all of this. Definitely things like the consumption of alcohol and an elevated blood glucose level, inflamed system, dietary choices. Um, you know, there can be a whole range of things that could lead to this and I certainly see a spike in the amount of people we're seeing uh, diagnosed or within our clinic because of perhaps the last couple of years, people didn't necessarily get those things checked that they would normally get checked. Yeah, so it is certainly yeah. a rise at the moment um, in people who weren't diagnosed perhaps as early as they might normally have been or access, had access to the care they might normally have seek um, during the pandemic period. Yeah, you know, the changes in somebody's body that ultimately that does lead to cancer takes many years to develop um, normally, doesn't it? And a very different... 100%. For every individual person, so we often look for for one cause for cancer, but we've learned that there's multiple hits or causes that uh, you know uh, any one person can get f- for cancer. For sure. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, you know that every woman with breast cancer is not the same. The causes for individual person's cancers are not the same. So there are many different kinds of breast cancer and we're just not talking about, you know, cancer, but cancers. So what are Mm. the common ones that you actually do see in clinic? In breast cancer, you mean the common types of cancers in general? Yeah. Yeah, in breast cancer? Well, both. Actually, both. Yeah. Okay. So the most common cancer I would see is breast cancer. And I think that's because of some work that I've done in this space uh, with uh, people like the McGrath um, Breast Cancer Institute and Cancer uh, Cancer Australia and um, some work in the metastatic space for breast cancer. Because, of course, a lot of breast cancer patients might experience a a metastatic incident where they, you know, come from their primary and, and develop further cancers. But my real space is mostly working with hormonally dependent breast cancers yeah. uh, and then, you know, some HER2 or DCIS, early stage cancers, um, right through to people experiencing other things like, um, you know, we have anal cancer, we have esophageal yeah, cancer, yeah. lung cancer, all the blood cancers. It really, there's such a huge diversity. And uh, I think that's one of the things to remember that unfortunately it's a disease that has um, so many variations in what you might experience. And when people develop cancer or hear that word, they have a lot of fear. And I yeah. think while there is a lot to be yeah. fearful of, there is also some uh, things diagnosed with cancer that have much different outcomes for those that maybe what people are thinking of when they think of that word. So um, look, I see it all. And uh, primarily I will treat with all or work with all of those patients. And the small exception is sometimes I'm not doing too much work in the paediatric space because it's quite specialised. Yeah, but is, of course, yeah. there are things we can do to support the littlest patients yeah. too. Oh, that's just beautiful. Yeah. Mm. Now, um, obviously, we'll go back to uh, breast cancer because there's a lot of women on tonight that are actually, um, you know, looking for awareness and tools um, on how sure. to cope. So um, how about the estrogen connection? It's, it's common knowledge nowadays that there's an actual connection between estrogen and breast cancer. And even science tells us that our estrogen exposures increase 
as they increase, so does our uh, risk of breast cancer. And there's numerous studies performed to show definitive link between overexposure to estrogen and increased risk of breast cancers. I mean, you know, we just have to look at birth control pills, um, you mm. know, receiving hormone replacement after menopause or even the amount of periods experienced in a lifetime are all ways to be exposed to high levels of estrogen. And it does carry a higher risk of, of breast cancer. But we've even got endocrine disruptors that are a key factor in the increase of um, estrogen in our bodies. And a lot of women d- that you probably see as well don't know about their xenoestrogens. Can you talk about mm-hmm. that, the endocrine yeah. disruptors? Yeah, so xenoestrogen and endocrine disruptors quite often come from the environment is where we would typically see them. Uh, And they're things that are going to change the way our hormones respond in our body, I guess, and and mimic sometimes how those hormones respond. And also uh, have an action on um, the metabolism of hormones. So they're things that we generally want to avoid. Uh, We can think of some other lovely estrogens that we love to use. So (laughs) phytoestrogens are plant-based estrogens. We would generally think of them as protective. And the simplest way to think of them is a xenoestrogen estrogens are the opposite and they're destructive and problematic and while we can do some testing around them unfortunately it's not something that's done in standard care so whenever someone comes with a condition that could be estrogen um, affected uh, and that's not just breast cancer certainly some colorectal cancers and prostate cancers in my opinion can be affected by estrogen we want to be doing those kind of tests to understand more about them yeah now um Endocrine disruptors or xenoestrogens can be found everywhere, can't they? Like in plastics containing BPA, such as um, water bottles and sippy cups, mm. and yeah. um, even receipt paper. But um, PVC, chlorine, um, you know, found in some piping and cling wrap, and but even in our soaps and toothpaste. Like I, I'm really particular about this. Like triclosan, it's an mm. antibacterial agent found in some soap and toothpaste, but it, but it does have. Um, it's an endocrine disruptor. Um, So, I mean, we all look at herbicides and pesticides, of course, you know, they're a given, they're they're the obvious ones, but a lot of women don't know about the triclosan, the antibacterial agent found in soap, or even um, underarm um, antiperspirants Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, all part of synthetic chemicals that are a major source of endocrine disruptors that can really affect um, women and uh, um, open them up to something like breast cancer. For sure, and I think it's really one of those things that once you lift the, lift the glider up, let's call it that, lift oh, the glider yeah, up and start yeah. to think about, oh, um, think about the, lift the lid on the problem and think about all the different causes, it can be very overwhelming. And so having good resources around that and trying to educate step by step is one of the things uh, that I do. And I always start with the water bottle because I think so often people yeah, are using fantastic. plastic yeah. water bottles. Um, Classic. You know, it's, yeah, the, the the myth about BPA, I mean, certainly BPA is an issue, but we can get xenoestrogens from other um, non-BPA plastics. So yeah, um, when we true. think about the exposure yeah. to plastics that we can't always control, we need to think about the exposures that we can control and ways we can swap to glass or um, something else that is, is going to minimise that risk. Yeah, but try using glass wherever possible, you know, because it doesn't contain BPA. It's quite uh, chemically neutral. But um, hitting, like you said, hitting or microwaving plastic will lead to leaching your chemicals into your food and drink. So avoid doing that as much as possible. Um, And and the the other one that you mentioned is refilling plastic water bottles. Um, So so try to change a water bottle, you know, that that could make a big big step towards um, Mm. optimal health. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So um, what type of patients do you see most frequently in clinic? 
Yeah, I would say most of the time they're, they're a breast cancer patient. But yeah. like I said, you know, we get all the cancers and I really do love when I see someone who has something a little bit unique or different. And, and one of the key reasons is I think that breast cancer through people like Olivia Newton-John, but also the great McGrath breast uh, cancer support nurses get a lot of support. And so, you know, I once had a patient say to me, like, anal cancer is not the fashionable yeah, cancer. Yeah. There's no pink ribbon day. There's yeah. no... Um, celebration of some of these more uncommon cancers. Uh, bladder cancer is another one. So thinking about um, all of those patients, uh, you know, I have a soft spot for all of them, but the majority of a, of a largest proportion would be those patients with breast cancer. And um, it's a real pleasure to work with them because, like you said, there is so much, even when we just think of uh, plastics in our environment and there are no estrogens, there's so much we can teach them to give them some control back as they move through the journey, which sometimes feels like it's being done to them yeah. that they're not involved in. Yeah. Now, it's not primarily um, only women that get breast cancer too, which is um, surprising. There's also a percentage mm. of men um, mm. that also get breast cancer. So, uh, you know, th- those days where we do check our breasts, I think uh, um, it's probably wise to get men to actually have a look what's going on on their chest as well. Yeah, and be really mindful that if you notice something, and, and I guess this is arcs back to those stats about, you know, the last couple of years, yes, it takes a long, 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 long time to, for things to develop, but what we don't want to do is leave anything that we're unsure about without getting a second opinion, and for men, I think that would be especially important as well. Yeah. Now, with hormonal um, breast cancers, obviously, you know, estrogen becomes a, the big word, doesn't it? So yeah. um, we always look at ways to improve our estrogen metabolism, Um and so normally the body's natural way to deal with estrogen is breaking it down, isn't it? Um, yes, eliminating. But, yeah, but um, that doesn't always happen. Um, so it's not always textbook, does it? So incorporating certain foods into one's daily diet can significantly aid one's body in the breakdown of um, estrogen. Do you, you obviously teach women about, uh, and, and men obviously, about um, food groups for yes, metabolising yes. estrogen. Yeah, so yes. can we talk about like cruciferous vegetables? Yeah, so cruciferous vegetables, I also, um, they would be the vegetables like broccolis and um, Brussels sprouts and kale and cauliflower. And, you know, I All would, our favourites as children. <laughs> yes, that's right. And I would also really give a shout out to rosemary. I think rosemary oh, is one yeah. of those herbs. I talk a lot about it in long COVID, but rosemary is one of those herbs um, that we use therapeutically, but could also be added to a whole lot of things or drunk as a tea. And Fantastic. just about everyone, yeah. everyone's neighbourhood has, um, you know, an out of control rosemary. <laughs> so grabbing some of that, it helps with um, the methylation and detoxification of estrogen. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, the sulforaphane, uh, one of the special ingredients. Oh, is that beautiful? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love to encourage patients to do some sprouting with things, not just with broccoli sprouts but with no. some of the phytoestrogen yeah, uh, yeah. sprouts are another tool that we can use because definitely those kind of foods especially when someone's undergoing treatment are the kind of things we can still safely adopt without risking any interactions that we obviously really want to avoid if um, people are currently on chemotherapy or immunotherapy yeah sure yeah now these vegetables that you mentioned are high in fiber and also contain those three compa- uh, uh, components that aid with the destruction removal of estrogen so um, fantastic. We know them as indole, dim, and, and sulforaphane, like you, you mentioned. But um, fantastic vegetables they are. Um, yeah, and um, obviously the only one piece of the solution. There's there's a multiple um, supply of of why you know um, or or tools we can actually utilise to, to help people, but um, to optimise their metabolism. What about uh, exercise? Do you find that that um, that actually helps improve um, yeah, people's exercise- prognosis? Yeah. 
Yeah, the the research on exercise is phenomenal um, across multitudes of cancer, but like anything, um, breast cancer gets a lot of coverage in the exercise research. So really profound published journal articles um, on the benefits of exercise. And, you know, in, in the stats, it's not even huge amounts of exercise. And when someone's really unwell and they're going through uh, treatment, they sometimes find it hard to exercise. Yeah. But we oh, know that even um, a slow 25-minute uh, walk um, or just being active in the garden, um, any type of exercise uh, five to six times a week for around that 25-minute period makes a huge impact in the, you know, uh, not just the experience of treatment because it helps yeah. to reduce those adverse effects of treatment, but it also improves life expectancy pretty considerably. Amazing, uh, so yeah. definitely um, in all stages of um, a cancer journey, I would be recommending some gentle form of exercise. The research is supportive of yoga, walking. You know, I just generally don't encourage something um, too strenuous and if someone is looking to do something new for the first time or something a bit more strenuous perhaps after their treatment I really encourage them to access the support of um, an exercise physiologist and this is a great place for us to work in kind of creating these collaborative relationships because we know very often oncologists are very busy people and they don't have time to discuss these things so it's something that I love discussing as part of the um, education around the lifestyle factors that patients can adopt. Oh, fantastic. That, that's, that's great. Um, now, um, we've got another factor that we look at too, don't we? We look at insulin resistance. So it, it's no surprise that women with higher insulin levels have a higher risk of getting breast cancer. And um, in order to understand how insulin resistance impacts your risk of de- developing breast cancer, we've got to look at um, how it actually works and, and what can be done to keep your insulin working well and prevent insulin resistance. That's obviously an important one um, when you look at therapeutic strategy, isn't it? Yeah, I really want all of my patients to um, get at least their HbA1c done. Um, HbA1c is a good determinant of the last three months average blood glucose levels, um, and I'm really looking for a like a four or a low five as a measure um, for. Um, you know, then to know that we've got a, a kind of stability there. If we have higher levels than that, then um, my dietary education is really pitched not only around getting lots of good quality food and vegetables, um, fruits like we talked about with the cruciferous, but also to be really mindful about the way that insulin resistance and perhaps pre-diabetes in a lot of the situations is impacting the tumour microenvironment and the tumour. And again, there's lots of research on this. And it's not as simple as uh, sugar feeds cancer by any stretch of no. imagination. Um, it, it, it's a to do with a, a whole gamut of metabolic processes and, and none of them are ideal if they're um, leading to insulin resistance or pre-diabetes or diabetes. Yeah, great. Um, now, sorry. Uh, so what is a typical support that you'd give a patient? With, with um, pre-diabetes or with insulin resistance, you mean? Yeah. With yeah. Insulin so, resistance. yeah, with insulin resistance. So certainly I would be um, trying to get that marker of where they're at. Um, I spend a lot of time talking to them about what their diet is and what they enjoy to eat because one of the real patterns I see in breast cancer is this um, restriction. You know, people will come and they proudly tell me they've taken meat out or they've taken sugar out or they've yeah, taken carbs yeah. out. Um, and I certainly think there's a bit of an element of orthorexia, that fear around food or yeah, to the yeah. point of an eating disorder um, in in some patients. So really I want to be about like the kind of foods you can enjoy. So we want to have lots more fruit and vegetables. We talk a lot about the structure of the plate. 
So the plate needs to have two to three handfuls of um, fruit or vegetables yeah, yeah. Um, and a good real you know, palm-sized serve of protein. And then we want to be mindful about the carbohydrates. And certainly I'm not going to say that I want to restrict the carbohydrates. <laughs> it's more like restricting the processed carbohydrate and encouraging more fibrous or healthier options. So an example would be moving away from um, processed or white potato and moving on to sweet potato and oh, making sure the portion yeah. Yeah, portion is, is not huge. I think another great example that people often resonate with is when we make spaghetti bolognese, you know, we tend to use lots and lots of pasta. It doesn't matter how amazing the pasta is. You could have made the pasta at home. If you're using a whole lot of pasta and a small amount of sauce, then the balance is really wrong from a glucose perspective. So we think about diet and we think about some of the nutrients. So things like chromium and magnesium are known to make a difference in blood glucose re- regulation, as are some of her- the herbs we love, like gymnema, um, cinnamon would be another one, nigella. So we think about those herbs uh, and if they're appropriate to help with regulation of the blood sugar level, getting that, that HbA1c or fasting blood glucose down for the patient. That, that's fantastic, isn't it? And, and um, I think as integrative medicine specialists, prevention is, is key, isn't it? So, yes. you know, if you think you've got insulin increase, um, because it, it, it is a risk for multiple, uh, a multitude of diseases, um, and identifying the insulin resistance is important so the problem can be rectified before permanent damage actually occurs. Mm. Um, because there's lots of, like you said, uh, research, you know, um, that does suggest that insulin levels have a direct relation with cancer in our bodies too. When they're high in the bodies and there's, there normally can be an increased metastasis that increases recurrence and a decreased survival rate from oh, breast cancer. Sure. Yeah, yeah, for, for sure. breast cancer. Yeah, so much so that some of the oncologists that I've worked with have used, you know, drugs like metformin to try yeah, and do, drive down that yeah. blood glucose. A new study came out that wasn't especially supportive of that recently, but I do think from a, perhaps, a, you know, it makes a lot more sense to me to treat the cause. And if the cause is someone's love for a food or even oh, right. alcohol, yeah, yeah. that might be putting up their blood glucose. We're going there. We We're getting there. <laughs> yeah, we want to change that. Um, rather than use another medication to try and control the blood glucose because yeah. it's very empowering for someone to see the shift that they can make with the diet and how much better it makes them feel, it particularly does. if they're already suffering from low energy due to their treatment. Yeah, and they're in control too, yeah. Mm. So how does someone know if they've got insulin resistance? And, and, and it is key. Like it sounds like it's not tied in with um, oncology, but it actually is. So um, yeah. what are the common indicators that we actually look for? Oh, yeah, look, I would, I would ask about diet and the choices that they're making, you know, um, quite often there'll be a tendency to go for the sweet things or to have um, low blood glucose moments. Uh, we look at the shape of the body and looking for that abdominal adiposity. Mm-hmm. Um, a hist- family history of diabetes would be another one. And there's lots of blood tests we can do that we've mentioned, so, like the HbA1c and yeah, I was gonna glucose say, yeah. and HOMA IR. Yeah. yeah, all right. So so what other, like if they go to the doctor's office, um, what type of um, uh, bloods would you like to see? Yeah, my preference if they were just to do one because I would yeah. try not to send them to get a whole lot more. They already feel a bit like a pin cushion yeah. would be to ask for a HbA1c. Yeah, and that fantastic. gives us an idea about the last three months because I find things like the fasting glucose. I mean, if you had a lovely night and you just had steamed fish and greens and you didn't have anything else after dinner, your blood glucose and went for a walk, so your blood glucose is going to look great. And it can be mis- misleading because if that's one night a week and the rest of them you're hoeing down on, something else on the couch late at night or having heaps of alcohol or not doing the same amount of exercise, your blood glucose will be a different reading. And so the HbA1c gives us more of a measure across the across the three months. Yeah, That's a bit fantastic. more of a guide. Fantastic. And I, I like the way that you uh, actually mentioned increased fibre in your diet. A lot of people 
um, you know, don't obviously know that way. With with the processed food and, you know, food from the supermarket, I mean, the fibre's been taken out, a lot of that uh, processed food. Um, so we're missing a lot of that um you know, protective fibre in our diet at the moment. So don't forget, like Carla said, you can get it from vegetables, beans, nuts and seeds. Um, they're all uh, great sources of fibre. So just eat regularly. Skipping meals can lead to overeating, which can result in insulin resistance. And like she said, um, eliminate trans fats. Oh, hydrogenated fats. Do we talk about that? And they're linking no, to insulin resistance. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so good. the hydrogenated fats, yeah, and what they actually yeah. do. To, yeah. Good suggestion. And I think... With the fibre, you know, for my patients, I give them a fibre list. But one of the easiest ones that I love to always mention is like hummus. You know, hummus yeah. um, has got yeah. those chickpeas in. Those chickpeas have fabulous fibre. It's one of the highest mm. um, sources of fibre. And it's so easy. You know, you could add it to roast vegetables, um, you know, as part of your dinner. Or you can have it as a snack with, um, you know, carrot sticks or celery sticks. Or, you know, you can pop it on a whole lot of stuff that <laughs> makes it really nice and easy to use. So, um, it's not hard to make the changes and I would try and encourage it to be pleasurable, like try new things and enjoy them rather than be, oh, my God, I've got to have a really um, healthy, stressful, uh, you know, hard-to-manage diet, which, you know, obviously doesn't yeah. help if someone's feeling stressed from their dietary choices. No, no. And especially if they've got something serious, you know, they're, they're already in that mode where it gets overwhelming. Mm. Yeah, mm. and it's very hard and to change habits. Insulin. Yeah. Insulin um, does not respond well to the cortisol rises and the no, impact of stress on the body. No. So that's a big part in regulating that yeah. um, insulin too. So um, the next part I want to talk about is obviously the immune system and the inflammation. So stress can actually cause that too. So, But it... it the inflammation um, is one of the roots of many diseases. And the immune system is very important for cancer prevention, as you know. And too mm. much inflammation in the body has been associated with growth of cancer. Have you? Can you talk about that? Yeah. So it's the number one driver that I look for. And yeah. inflammation <laughs> is insidious. Um, and sometimes people don't know they're inflamed. Other times people will have a, an inkling that they're inflamed. Again, we can use some blood tests to understand levels of inflammation. That's something I try and get along to, alongside that blood glucose reading um, because inflammation has a huge impact on what's called the tumour microenvironment. Yeah, I really like yeah. to talk about um, the hallmarks of cancer and hallmarks mm-hmm. of cancer is something that is uh, from standard uh, can- cancer support and research. It's a very well um, published topic. So if you're interested in the hallmarks of cancer, check that out in um, the published research. And basically yeah. inflammation is one of those key hallmarks um, that drives um, initial diagnosis, but also progression in a whole lot of different ways. And it's something that we're very good as um, complementary medicine practitioners yeah. in supporting, mm-hmm. whether it be through making dietary changes um, or other lifestyle changes like reducing stress, or whether it be by using some of the wonderful options we have that has been shown in the um, published journal articles to reduce inflammation. Yeah. And I mean, our immune system really is remarkable with what we come in contact with every day and the way it deals with, you know, the environmental um, issues. It, it, it's really tenacious, but um, sometimes it's able to detect precancerous cells and destroy them while, while it's actually excellent at sniffing out precancerous cells. Our immune system's not always infallible, is it? No, no. But, and some things would really have an impact on you know, the body's ability to keep on top of the immune system regulation that it, the level it needs. Yeah. I know when I had a look at some research papers, when they were looking at the um, the examinations of breast tissue in healthy women who die by accident, they actually saw 30 to 50% of healthy women aged about 
40 to 50% with pre-malignant microscopic breast cancer cells. Mm. So, the, But the body does keep them in check. Mm. Yes, and I think there's more and more information around that process and why some cells are apoptose, that's destruction of the tumour cells, and why might in some people they might let be left to, you know, grow and, and, and increase in, and bulk up those tumours that become detected yeah, uh, so, down the track. So what do we think about terrain then? I mean, we've got two people who've got similar uh, breast cancer. One prognosis is really great and the other isn't so much. Does terrain have anything to do with it? I would say terrain has everything to do with it. And I try and explain <laughs> yeah. terrain to my patients yeah. when we're talking about so blood glucose and inflammation directly in, um, uh, uh, impact terrain and that tumour microenvironment. So if we have high inflammation or high blood glucose, um, the tumour microenvironment is like a vegetable garden that you've just put oh, seeds all yeah. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. So that vegetable garden is really a great analogy. And the last thing we want to be doing is um, creating an environment that's perfect for tumours to grow. So um, things we can do to control that vegetable garden or that terrain <laughs> cool. are the kind of things we've talked about. And, yeah. and that helps. Um, the body to do its work to prevent these things, um, cells, from being able to um, grow and then thrive. So let me just summarise what you've said previously, uh, being um, unhealthy fertiliser or soil. So we look out for high levels of insulin in the body and uh, high levels of sugar in the body and unhealthy fats, particularly um, high levels of trans fats. Um, and we also look at high omega-6. That's something I, I didn't bring up either. High omega-6 compared to omega-3, the ratio. Um, that's when someone's not getting enough um, healthy omega-3s in their diet. Um, the insulin-like growth factor and uh, high levels of inflammation that uh, Carla just talked about, they're all things that we should be avoiding as much as possible. And everything in our... Um, previous listing that does promote the growth of abnormal cells and in order to build a healthy terrain for our bodies um, there are some concepts that we actually look at aren't there um, yeah. and one of them is the phytonutrients that are found in plant foods like vegetables yeah for sure yeah um, we also we'll talk about that later but uh, low levels of inflammation and high omega-3 levels um, green tea do you use green tea as well I love green tea. And while I actually don't love green tea, I try and help people love it. Um, and some of my tips for having it, and, this, and the studies on green tea are phenomenal, particularly those that have um, come out of cultures that have used green tea traditionally for a long time. You see quite um, strong evidence for the benefit. So uh, I can't really think of anyone that shouldn't be green, drinking green tea um, who has a diagnosis, and I use it in a couple of forms. Um, certainly having three months a day has some research around it. How do you use it? it? Yeah, how do you um, use it? I, I will get people to mostly put it in a smoothie. So if, yeah. someone is, mm -hmm. if we're trying to increase protein, yeah. I'll get them to actually make up big batches of green tea. Um, I encourage them to pour off the first pass. I don't know if you know about this, but like yeah. each time you put water on, it's called a pass, and the yeah. first pass has <laughs> all the caffeine in. Yeah. And green tea's uh, active ingredient is called EGCG, and it's in there for 10 passes, which is really phenomenal. For 10? So if, 10, wow, so 10. you can keep going for 10. <laughs> keep going. And so that, you know, buy really good, wow. organic, beautiful green tea yeah. and don't waste it with just one go. Keep chopping it up. And that's how that's it's traditionally amazing. used in some of the cultures that have this as a traditional food. And so 10 passes, so a tea bottle or tea tongs, teapot that you can just keep <laughs> filling up. And so I get people to make, you know, a couple of litres of green tea up and store it in the fridge and then use that as a liquid in their smoothies. Um, when we're trying to encourage protein, I, I generally recommend some smoothie recipes. Um, and green tea can be very well hidden in that um, and things like berries, 
um, blueberries or, you know, whatever fruit they might be using, usually a lower glucose fruit, will cover that flavor. So it's an easy way to get it in if someone doesn't enjoy it. If they enjoy it, that's brilliant. And they can just drink it um, throughout the day. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, I use it in a tablet form too. I really do enjoy using it in some of the formulas that I use uh, in the higher doses in the tablet form. Now, you just talked about inflammation previously. What are signs of inflammation? I just want to make sure that um, people out there are aware of what's going on with their body. So what would they actually look at, um, you know, to know that they're, they've got an inflammatory response or their body's going through, um, you know, quite a huge load of inflammation? Yeah, so there's a couple of different ways to tell. Certainly you can get blood tests done, um, which most often aren't done um, when a cancer mm-hmm. is diagnosed. Usually things kind of go down one track and we uh, get rushed on and there's not yeah. necessarily option for these tests to be done. So along with that one um, that we talked about, for insulin resistance, I also encourage my yeah. patients to have a test called ESR, that stands for erythrocyte sedimentation yeah. rate. Yeah. And I'm really looking for low levels of that. A normal level would be considered 3 to 20, yeah. but I'm really looking for more like that 3 level anything higher than three we need to do some work but if someone hasn't had a blood test done one of the key things i think you see with inflammation um is that when patients wake up in the morning they feel a little bit stiff so for about the first three to five minutes they're kind of propping and walking around feeling a little bit (laughs) stiff and sore like that's easy in winter (laughs) yeah maybe not if they're cold but yeah about feeling like they're 80 and then within five minutes or so everything gets moving and they don't feel so stiff and sore and quite often it's the small joints fingers and toes or fingers and feet that feel a bit like this and then of course if they have any other inflammatory conditions so autoimmunity gut health issues you know inflammatory bowel disease any other conditions that are associated with inflammation will be um you know having a knock-on effect um, as a comorbidity to the cancer. So we want to get those under control yeah. as well. That joint pain is really um, imperative, isn't it, to get checked too. Mm. Um, what about, do you use CRP, um, the C-reactive yeah, CRP. protein as a blood test? I, yeah? yeah, I do use CRP, but I find that CRP is sometimes uh, more acute. And so sometimes, especially if patients are undergoing treatment, yeah. their CRP yeah. might rise because they of do. you know some kind of bacterial thing or because they just yeah. had... I don't know, heat the blood test and they've got that site where all the blood tests have been taken from. I find ERC is a bit more reliable around the chronic inflammation. Yeah. Look, so chronic inflammation, is, as Carla said, it's a common factor in the development of cancer. So, um, And it does cause multiple issues, which can influence our susceptibility to cancer growth because it does damage the the DNA and inhibits our body's ability to repair itself. So if you're getting any of those symptoms, please get them uh, checked. And there are tests, like we said, to determine the amount of inflammation in your uh, body. So what are some of the easy ways that we utilise to decrease inflammation in in, uh, patients' bodies? Yeah, so I really like to think of some of the typical things that we would think of even if someone had joint issues. Uh, so things like uh, omega-3s or SPMs, uh, standing for specialised pro-resolvent mediators. They're a special type of fish oil. Uh, curcumin, boswellia. Oh, um, yeah. oh, there's a list of endless of anti-inflammatories. <laughs> one of the things I also like to do um, is, you know, some people, as you would know, are prone to being very good at creating inflammation but yeah. very poor at resolving it. So mm. sometimes we'll do some epigenetic testing around understanding that and that also helps me choose you know sometimes for some people things like vitamin d will be a great anti-inflammatory or the green tea will be a great anti-inflammatory or flaxseed oil or you know so there can be some personalization around inflammation um reduction if we understand more about the patient's epigenetic background 
Yeah, and and just easy, the easy ways that we talked about previously, like avoiding refined and processed foods, and um, you know, eliminating 100%. added sugars and sugary drinks and juices and refined carbohydrates. Um, and also going to bed on time. Yeah, also combine your complex carbohydrates like brown rice with a protein and a fat to mm. uh, slow down its digestion and absorption. Um, and like you said, you know, like your turmeric, resveratrol, ginger. And your favourite cream tea. I love that. love the way you described that before. (laughs) Now I know 10 times um, I can reuse. Um, Yeah. But sleep too. Like a lot of people have um, issues actually uh, getting to sleep. And Mm. uh, so so what do you suggest there when they have problems getting to sleep? Uh, Yeah, I really start with the basics. So the obvious, like the blue light and getting off your tech early and having a bit of a sleep routine that, you know, involves, you know, dimming the lights and, um, doing some reading or doing some stretching, preparing for bed, uh, not eating too late, not exercising too late, um, using apps like Insight Timer or I really love the piece of music called Weightless by oh, Marconi nice. Union. Yeah, you can nice, check that yeah. out and it's designed by sound engineers to really help stimulate the sleep cycles. And then there is a lot of research around um, nutrients and herbs, but I particularly like melatonin. Now, melatonin is not necessarily easy to access in Australia, especially at the dose uh, that we use in integrative oncology support. In integrative oncology in the US, um, the dosage range is quite high, but it is one of the most well-researched complementary medicines in oncology. Mm -hmm. And um, one of my students just sent me this uh, today, a really great paper about the benefits of melatonin in oncology that just came out um, as a published journal article just uh, in the last couple of months. So it is one that I think of if someone has um, needing some immune support because it has a yeah. real immunomodulator yeah. reaction uh, and has um, sleep issues, but it's one that needs to be worked through with um, a practitioner. It's not easily accessible uh, in Australia so much. Yeah. Where are we at with um, the trial of elimination um, of dairy and wheat and, and gluten in regards to oncology support? Yeah, I really try and personalise it. And in the data, I don't see a huge, uh, with the exception of thyroid cancer, I think we definitely need yeah. to be taking out the wheat and the gluten in thyroid cancer. Um, I, You know, you see small studies or definitely anecdotal improvements um, removing those foods. And what I guess it is all about is personalisation. If someone says they feel gross, inflamed, bloated, uncomfortable when they're having dairy or they have a hormonal issue, and we have to think about the the components that make up milk, then we need to be, you know, thinking is that the right food for someone. But it's hard to make those um, big statements that you could make with something like sugar or alcohol, which pretty much everyone needs to be coming off. Yeah. What are your favourite complementary medicines to recommend to someone going through oncology treatments? Oh, well, green tea has to raise up. But my <laughs> it num- does now. I know my, that about you. <laughs> yeah, my number one favourite complementary medicine is always going to be the medicinal mushrooms. Yeah. Um, uh, turkey tail, to be specific, but I'm you know happy to think about just about any of the medicinal mushrooms because they have such a huge amount of research that really they supports do. the use yeah. of them. And um, really that's one of the ways that I got interested in working in um, the cancer support space is because of that huge amount of research I was seeing coming out of countries. You know, in, in Japan, uh, there's a formula called PSK and PSK has a huge amount of research on it, so much so that Standard Oncology in Japan um, uses PSK uh, with, uh, you know, about 25% of um, patients and, and, you know, takes up a big part of um, the prescription for those patients. So it's something that I'm super passionate about. But, you know, turmeric too, Japanese knotweed for its resveratrol. Oh, look, I could, you know, list for days 
um, all the benefits. And, and I guess that's the exciting thing I say to my patients when they come in, like the toolbox that we have to use is as big as my room and yeah. it's growing. Um, it's really choosing what's most appropriate because I don't think more is better um, because the patient, especially if they're undergoing treatment, is often on a lot of things and interactions can be a real problem. So we try and fix them and choose the most appropriate ones um, from a nutritional perspective. Um, you know, it, it would be things like vitamin D, um, zinc, selenium, you know, there's so many, so many that I love. Yeah. Now, the beauty about our medicine is that um, you know, it's individualised treatment too. So, um, mm. you know, you look at the person individually and, and the issues that they actually have to develop a therapeutic strategy. Um, so you make them safe um, for everyone, basically. So people would ask you, you know, are these uh, things that you're talking about safe to take for everyone with cancer or whilst they're undergoing treatment? Yeah, definitely not, and it's a, it's a very uh, big part of my job to try and work out that safety because obviously there's a certain amount of controversy about using complementary medicines yeah. um, in the standard medical field, and my aim is to really try and um, be part of a care team, not just for myself and my patients, sure. but yeah, also for definitely. our industry. Yeah. And so um, we have a really great databases that help us understand how our therapies interact with um, other therapies, oh, whether it be yeah. pharmaceutical things yeah. um, or you know, immunotherapies, the co-prescriptions that patients might be having because of other things that are wrong with them while they're undergoing their treatment. And we also have some great rules we can follow about half-lives and understanding the metabolism of drugs. And this all forms part of our naturopathic training. So I feel like we have a really special place in things because the stats okay, in Australia yeah. are that more than 76% of patients will actually take a complementary medicine mm. and a lot of those are choosing them from um, over-the-counter sources. And over-the-counter? Yeah, okay. over-the-counter. And some of the most common interactions are ones that are the most popular things. And so we know that from an Irish study, so we don't have an Australian paper, but we know from an Irish paper yeah. that oncologists think that around 36% of patients are only, that's all that would be taking a complementary medicine, including a dietary change. Wow. So really there's a really big gap of around 40 or more percent of patients that aren't telling their um, specialists about the therapies that they're taking from a complementary medicine perspective and why I can understand why that happens sometimes. It's yeah. also very dangerous. So um, getting some good advice around safety is super important and it's something that um, we really try and work in because there's no need to use anything that's risky because there's always another safer option in our awesome toolbox and we can it come is. back to those things that aren't great at the time once yeah. treatment's over. Fantastic, fantastic expansion on that. Great. Um, what about uh, the process of detoxification? You know, obviously it's a process in our body that helps get rid of toxins that are um, that we're exposed to every day. And um, there has been an explosion of toxic chemicals released in our environment, particularly over the last 80 years, which means that uh, that's what we actually get exposed to every day, don't we? Mm, so mm, horrific numbers. Yeah. It, you know, um, toxins encountered in everyday life, and I'm not saying this to to make people, you know, squirm or anything like that. It's just I want them to be aware um, and minimise um, their exposure to it. But we've got uh, toxins that our immune system, you know, gets exposed to every day. Environmental endocrine disruptors, like we discussed um, previously, pesticides, herbicides. We've got uh, cigarette smoke. Do a lot of people smoke still? <laughs> Um, uh, not enough, not not many. No, although I do see a bit of a rise in the whole vape uh, issue. Oh, yeah, actually, that yes, that's what we talked about. Seem didn't we? to be considered yeah. so much by patients as a problem. Yeah, yeah, and what's, and what's really scary, you know, they, they package them in, in really beautiful pa packaging now, so they make them glamorous and they don't smell, and you know, they make them. Um, 
uh, fruity smelling. So um, people actually think that uh, there's no harm in vaping, but it's actually got 10 times the amount of uh, of um, nicotine in them mm, than, than wow. a cigarette smoke. So they're quite toxic, actually. Yeah. yeah big source of pollution there. Yeah. Um, but um, underlooked, you know, meat's cooked at high temperatures and, and quickly. Mm. Um, mm. that, that make the aromatic um, amines and have carcinogenic properties. Um, I guess we'll talk about alcohol, but toxins produced in our own body too. So I know you and I talked about alcohol outside of, of this place, but um, alcohol will be a point of contention for many, but it's important to understand that it is a risk regarding breast cancer and alcohol and its connection to breast cancer has been very well studied and the results are actually striking. And so as one alcohol intake increases, so does one's risk of breast cancer. And um, yeah. in fact, one of the research papers that I was looking at, um, it says for every one drink increase in consumption per day, a woman's risk of getting breast cancer is increased by 12% for each consumption mm. of drink. So if mm. a woman drinks more than two drinks per day, her risk has increased threefold. That's yeah, absolutely, and even low astounding, levels, isn't it? Yeah, mm. even low levels of intake of three to five glasses a week have been associated with an increased risk. So clearly, the relation between alcohol and breast cancer risk um, isn't um, of no trivial order. No, no. I do sometimes say to my patients, I wonder if we could um, jump ahead 50 years or even 30 years and look back and see if this becomes, you know, like a smoking lung cancer uh, connection where we do learn that this is something that we have to be, um, you know, have a different thought around because of the, the huge risk that's definitely coming out in the research. Yeah. Now, obviously, um, you know, the alcohol makes it harder for the liver to detoxify um, all other toxins in the environment. I mean, a lot of people will be asking, but what's the relationship? You know, how can it be so detrimental? But um, obviously there's a liver and the detox impact, the um, increase of free estrogen, the um, decreasing of B vitamins that are vitally important for a multitude of bodily functions um, because alcohol actually uses those um, um, up and there are a lot of risks involved with alcohol intake. So a good rule of thumb is to consume it in uh, moderation. But um there are many foods that we can actually take to strengthen our ability to detoxify or get rid of toxins, um, you know, I guess to buffer all this as well. So we, like you said previously, we can focus on fibre, um, protein, fluids, but what about organic? What do you think about um, organic foods versus just, uh, you know, normal sprayed foods? Yeah, it's a great way to be able to minimise the kind of environmental pollutants that we're thinking of that might have an estrogenic action or those, be one of those xenoestrogens, or also um, minimise the stress that's going on in our body from a detoxification perspective as it has to break down, um, not just the things that we can't control coming into our body. So, you know, if you live or work on a street where cars are travelling up and down that street in high concentration, you know, your body's got to work on eliminating that. It's not necessarily easy to move or avoid those things, but we can definitely make some good changes by increasing, uh, increasing the organics that we consume um, and, and being able to minimise some of the chemicals that way. Yeah. So Carla did mention that, um, you know, eat your cruciferous uh, vegetables. They're, they're really great at helping detoxify the body, the broccoli, the kale, the collards, Brussels sprouts, 
Um, they've all got wonderful detoxification properties, but um, try to add in at least a serving every day. And don't forget the garlic, cilantro, parsley, dandelion mm. greens, chlorophyll. They're all really helpful foods to add to your diet that can support the di- detoxification process in your body. Um, there's many more things that we can do, isn't there, Carla? Like, um, you know, make sure you have um, motility or one to two bowel movements a day. Increase um, your water intake normally. Yeah, um, sweating yeah. regularly, exercising, like Carla mentioned. Um, what do you think? What's your stand on using of uh, steam or saunas? Yeah, I love it. And my patients really, um, I haven't done a lot of training around it, but my patients who do it find it really beneficial for a whole lot of reasons. And I think that, um, you know, if we're mindful of the fact that um, we have multiple detoxification routes, and you obviously mentioned the bowel there, and, um, you know, we also have breathing at, or the breath and perspiration through our skin. So trying to use multiple detoxification organs obviously helps to amplify our ability to detoxify. And I think the saunas um, help, help with that, as well as having that nice aspect of um, creating me time or, or some wind down time, some time to listen to something that makes you feel relaxed or do something while you're in there, um, I think is a double uh, whammy of a benefit um, that a lot of my patients have enjoyed, especially if they have little people at home. It's a yeah. chance to kind of escape and just do some me time things. Yeah. The um, other thing that um, probably a lot of people talk to us about is the um, gut mo- microbiota. So um, I think they're the unsung heroes of our digestive system. They really mm. are. Um, it, does that play an important part in um, in optimising people's health? Yeah, for sure. And it's one of the areas that I'm watching very closely. Mm. Definitely we know that the microbiome and the, the species within the microbiome even have an impact on how people tolerate um, or uh, benefit from different chemotherapeutic agents. But we also know about the estrobolome. And estrobolome is really to do with how uh, estrogen is detoxified and how uh, the species within the gut have an impact on the estrogen. And so certainly new papers are coming out looking at how we can impact that and the kind of species we need to be mindful of and the way that um, even things like contracting COVID-19 might be having an effect on um, the microbiome, wow. which is a whole topic mm. in itself, but how then that yeah. might be having a knock-on impact on estrogen or that estrobolome and breast cancer. So really interesting wow. research coming out in this space. Yeah. Have you seen any research um, stating that uh, women who've been on lots of antibiotics may be more um, susceptible to breast cancer? that I have, but I certainly think that the destruct, de- extrapolating from the destruction of the microbiome mm. having an impact, yeah. I'd yeah. say that there, there would probably be a correlation. Yeah. And um, I, I tend to find that a lot of those women will have experienced other kind of hormonally uh, active things happening that might also tie in there. So yeah, probably lots of crossovers. Yeah. Um, what do you think about phytonutrients in the diet? You can't go wrong. I think, you know, eat the rainbow. You know, I try to talk to my patients about look at your shopping trolley um, and (laughs) your basket. And if there's no rainbow in there, go back. You didn't get enough. You know, like go grab some bright things. Don't buy the same thing every week. And I really try and educate patients around. We want 40 different um, species of of, um, plants in our uh, diet throughout the the, the the day or the week. Beautiful, yeah. Day or the week. Yeah. And so, um, you know, doing things like grabbing different varieties of apples, don't always buy the same one, um, or getting some great herbs and nutrients, nuts and seeds, yeah. legumes, you know, you really try and increase that diversity of colour and that really helps increase those phytonutrients. Yeah. All right. How about um, what does meditation have to do with uh, 
with um, the immune system? Yeah, so I mean, we know that stress has such a significant impact on the immune system. So as uh, opposed to that, meditation um, can have such a huge benefit. And uh, there's some great research in um, meditation and breast cancer and a really great resource that we might mention to the listeners called the Paving Program. The Paving Program is a um, mind-body-spirit program that's been well-researched for breast cancer patients that have they can improve their well-being and adopt things like meditation. So great resource, but meditation, you know, has a pretty significant significant um, level of research and, and is something that I would encourage all cancer, uh, cancer patients and cancer carers too to do yeah, um, because, yeah. you know, we know it has such a huge impact. Uh, and apps like Insight Timer um, have really great resources that are meditation-specific for breast cancer too. So it can be a way to kind of connect into some um, disease-specific meditations too. Right. Now, you're just such a wealth of um, knowledge. It's fantastic always talking to you. If people want an appointment with you or to come and see you, where can they contact you? What's some of the yeah, media the easy- resources? Yeah, that can yeah the easiest you? place to find me is CarlaWren.com. It's my website and you can branch out from there. I'm on Instagram just as CarlaWren and also on Facebook. And I'm you know really approachable. So please get in touch if you have any questions because I think this is such a growing space and uh, there's so many great things we can do and being mindful of how you can adopt those lifestyle factors um, is a big um, way to give hope, I think, and then just ensuring safety so that we can use all of our beautiful content complementary medicines, but not cause any problems uh, with our other care team members or our medications that we might already be prescribed. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on to the show. We're, we're so um, lucky to have you on. Just, um, you know, you're such a valued uh, peer in this industry. So we're so lucky that you've um, committed this time to, uh, for our Absolute audience. Thank pleasure. you so much. No, it's, been it's been great. Such great a wealth chat. of information. Thank you so yeah. much. So, um, yeah, so if anyone wants to um, reach out to Carla, she's mentioned that, or I'll put it on my Facebook page too as well, that uh, your details and a little bit about breast cancer and um, oncology. Thank you so much for being on our show. Um, thank you. And thank for you everything for that you me. do, and for everything you do each day, putting no, on that cake. Thank you cape. so much. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, take care. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank and you're you. listening to The Wellness Couch, 87.6 FM. And uh, we'll speak to you next week. Bye-bye.